Revelation 6. As we uh, continue to see in bird's eye form the history of the world from the first to the second coming of Jesus. As God continues to unfold to John in vision form the things that will take place on the earth. And uh, things that aren't always so pleasant to hear and uh, but at the same time we rejoice that although uh, it's not easy for us to hear about the things that have happened the things that are happening and that will happen on the other hand we never want to be left in ignorance do we uh, as I was saying to the folks in Cape Traverse this morning it's like uh, w when there's something has been afflicting you you've had this some disorder and you can't put your finger on it and the doctors don't know what it is but then finally you come to say this is what you have this is the problem they're able to diagnose it and even though it may be uh, difficult to hear yet you know what you're dealing with and that is always a good thing you say at least doctor now I know what I've got I know where we have to go from here I know how we have to prepare for this that I'm not going to go from bad to worse, not knowing how to treat what I've got. Now you've said this is the problem, this is, you know, the research on this and so on, these are the medications you can take. I'm glad to hear that. And I know it'll be a difficult road, but thankfully I know what I'm in for and I've, I can prepare. That's the idea really behind the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a mixture of triumph and tragedy. But it is always truth. It's triumph, it's tragedy, but it's altogether true in that we now know what the problem is. The problem is sin and man's rebellion against God. History is not simply a random series of actions that have no rhyme or reason. That happen just for no purpose. Uh, sin is the problem. And yet mankind wants us to continually steer our way back to the goodness of man. And we've been seeing that. Uh, you know, we just need to get back to the garden. We need to love one another and imagine there's no heaven, no hell below us. No religion, and as John Lennon goes on to say, it's a manifesto for ignorance, is what it is. And that's why mankind wants to steer us in that direction, because it's giving us an alternative understanding of why the world is the way it is. And all we need to do is redistribute everything so everyone has an equal amount and everybody will be happy. And that is just false. It's not true. The Bible gives us an, uh, the true idea, the true reason of why things are the way they are. Because there's sin in man. When sin came into the Garden of Eden, the man and the woman were now at odds. The man turns and says, This woman, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave to me and I ate. There is discord. And following from that act of disobedience, Cain kills Abel. And 
evil begins to spread like a cancer on the earth. And so we may want to uh, lose ourselves in some kind of modern utopian way of dealing with how to solve man's problems or where problems come from. Oh, well, it's just a lack of e e equity. It's just a, we need to redistribute everything. We need to do all... Now, the, the, there's a, a, a sense in which we need to be fair. We need to be compassionate. I'm not decrying those things in the least. But if we simply understand the reason why the world is the way it is in man's way of thinking, and that we simply need to get to some kind of human utopia, we will be digging ourselves deeper. But we need to stop and face the truth. And this is what the Bible does for us here. It shows us uh, the truth so that in seeing the truth, in knowing the truth, we might know how now to prepare. And that's what Jesus does in the book of Revelation. Shows us how we are to prepare for the reality of living in a world that is fallen. That is that where evil is resident within the heart, not just of people out there, but you and I. I mean, if we don't get that right, if we say it's always them, I mean, we're following into the ways of man's thinking again, aren't we? It's us versus them. We're the righteous, they're the unrighteous. The problem is out there, and they need to come on our side. And it, it, no, I am the problem. As G.K. Chesterton wrote to a, a, a famously to a, a, a British newspaper, he said, asked what was wrong with the world, and he wrote back, Dear Sir, I am. That's all he wrote. I am. I am the problem. And if we don't get that right, if we don't start there, we will never solve the problem. And so we come to chapter 6 and verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Well, again, as I said, these things are not pleasant for us to Think about it. on a beautiful summer, fall, uh, 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 not a summer, fall, a beautiful fall day uh, uh, to, to be thinking about these things. And yet, as I said, truth is the ultimate. Not whether it's uncomfortable truth, but it's truth. Even though it is uncomfortable, we seek the truth. And that's a wonderful thing to be a people who follow the truth where it leads, to follow truth no matter what it costs us. And this is what Jesus is saying here in the book of Revelation. This is the truth. I am the truth. You embrace me not only as a system of understanding, but as a person. And that truth will lead in a fallen world. In a perfect world, it wouldn't. But in a fallen world, it will lead to conflict. 
Because Jesus, as we were seeing in 1 John, puts the world into two camps. Those who are following the truth and those who are following the, the deception of the devil. And we again, as I said earlier, you see that in the way people try to shape or frame the world's problems and solutions. Or the way in which mankind today is reinterpreting the reality which not only Christians but religious people down through the centuries and categories that they've lived with for millennia. And so you see a, a, a rising up against God in a very uh, 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 intense way. But Christians live in that world. And because of that, the truth is always going to be met with resistance. As John says in the first chapter of the Gospel, the light came into the world and the darkness tried to overcome the light. In other words, you have in that first chapter of the Gospel of John this war. The darkness trying to swallow up the light, but then the light ultimately winning, the light shining in a dark place. That ultimately is in the heart of every one of us. We are by nature in darkness. We are by nature separated from God, from the truth of God. And that's why Jesus is called the light of the world. That the moment the person believes in Jesus, light dawns, light floods their soul, and they say, now I see things as they really are. And so the, the Psalms, for example, speak a great deal about light. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light my path and so here we what we find as we look in is the souls of believers who have died uh, for the cause of the kingdom they're uh, 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 under this altar and revelation has been preparing us for this hasn't it back in chapter 2 and verse 10 um, it, it says um, do not fear what you're about to suffer uh, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. It says in another place that so you, some of you will be put to death for my name's sake. Jesus says in Matthew uh, chapter uh, 24 and at verse 9, uh, uh, something similar. He says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Listen to that. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. Would you follow someone who promised that kind of thing? And you will be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. Doesn't Jesus want to win friends and influence people? Jesus wants them to know the truth. That although this is the greatest message ever told, that we as rebels in our hearts against God can be forgiven of our sin and brought into the kingdom of God as sons and daughters, that message is not going to be 
received by all. It's certainly not going to be received by their fellow Israelites. Forget for a moment about the Samaritans, or forget for a moment about the, uh, uh, the Ethiopians, or forget for a moment about any of these other world groups. Jesus says, even within your, among your own countrymen, this message will not be received. They will respond more hatefully. Now, think of that. You might think of some far-off land. Say, okay, we, we really don't like this. That wasn't the way. When this gospel went to the four corners of the earth, the Gentiles came in in droves and they started embracing it. But who responded the fiercest against the message? It was Jesus' own countrymen. It was, it was the apostles' own countrymen. It was the Jews who, who themselves at that time responded with such violence against Jesus. We will not have this man to reign over us. Crucify him, crucify him. And they pursued crucifixion. They didn't just pursue capital punishment of some lower form. They didn't pursue just a few days in prison until things died down. They said, we want crucifixion especially. Because it put to shame in a complete and total way the victim. And they said, we want nothing less than that. That's how much we hate this man. That's how much we hate his message. And Jesus is saying, look, if they did that to me, then that is going to be your legacy as well. Jesus was up front. He said to his disciples before he left, in this world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And so he's preparing them for that. It's not just the New Testament that prepared uh, them for that. You can go back to the prophecy of Daniel. And you find there the church's forecast and all the troubles that the church would go through there. And so he says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and the witness they had, been, that they had borne. These are saints who had died and who were now safe and secure in heaven. And they are, it says, uh, under the altar. Now it doesn't tell us what altar. We're, we're shown a couple of altars in the Bible. An altar of sacrifice and an altar of incense. And it seems what John is doing here is he is uniting those two things. We've already seen how the, uh, the uh, incense going up before God was the prayers of the saints. And that's certainly what they're doing here, aren't they? They're praying to God. But what we also see is the, the souls of these are under the, under the altar. And in the Old Testament, when the sacrifice was made on the altar, the blood ran down and pooled at the bottom of the altar. So it seems as if John is embodying these two ideas of prayer, the altar of incense, and the altar of sacrifice. The Bible often uses language of sacrificial death to describe Christian discipleship. Paul says, I am ready uh, on the point of death be, uh, uh, of being sacrificed. 
Even if I am to be poured out as a libation upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad, he says. The, the Christian life is characterized by sacrifice. Romans chapter 12, Therefore present your bodies as a living sacrifice unto God, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable offer. Which is your reasonable worship. And so, the, the, the Bible is describing the saints in that way as here under the altar. They themselves had made the ultimate sacrifice for the kingdom of God. As many are doing around the world as we sit here this morning. And now they are crying out. They are crying out. They are there, it tells us, and this is an important point for us to make, for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They were there for the word of God. I want you to think about that for a second. That what we hold in our hand and the testimony that it gives is and was worthy of these people giving their lives. I grew up with stories from open doors and groups like that of, of Chinese Christians who could not afford an individual Bible, but they would, be, they would find themselves given one page of the Bible. And before you got another page, you had to memorize that page and then you passed it on to a neighbor down the street. Under cover of night, as you as you got that page in through their door, under the door, through the window, or however you did it, they were willing to put their lives on the line for one page of the Word of God. And in many ways that has not changed. That to identify openly as a believer today in many parts of the world is to sign your own death warrant. And and, but nevertheless, it was worth it to them. I wonder, is the Word of God and the testimony worth it to you? Now, we may talk about varying degrees of sacrifice in our lives. There's the ultimate sacrifice, right? That many believers are making in different parts of the world. But there is the daily sacrifice that we make because we believe that the Word of God is true. So we turn the television off. We gather together as husbands and wives or families and we say, look, we, we have to give our time to the Word of God. We spend time in the Word. We, we, we spend that time individually or as families. We say, it's worth, if these people gave their lives for the testimony of the Word, we as a family then though we're not called to make that ultimate sacrifice, will sacrifice on a daily basis and come before God in prayer. Come before God reading. Making sure that if life is getting too far ahead of us, we start cutting and slashing and sacrificing for the Word. We dig deeply into our pockets and say, what, how can I advance the Kingdom of God in the world through my finances? What can be supported? What can be helped? What about my prayers? Am I, can I sacrifice for uh, 
believers in other parts of the world by making sure I find out what's going on in Iran, in China, in North Korea, in all of these places where it is a, a capital crime oftentimes to be a Christian, to be a believer. And so we, we see the worth of the Word of God. What it also shows us is if that we're not a believer, that we see what the Bible is saying about the importance of that truth. That these people were willing to die for the Word of God because Jesus died for them. They knew that they could give their lives because they were ready to they were ready to go. As I've spoken about before, when uh, uh, my wife was in hospital in Moncton uh, when she had her uh, 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 brain hemorrhage a few years ago, there was a, a, a pastor in the hospital there from uh, Nigeria. Uh, and uh, he, I, I was mentioning to him the, the incredible, intense suffering that believers are undergoing in Nigeria. He says, oh, they don't realize that when they put us to death, we go to be with our Savior. He wasn't going to have any kind of mopey uh, kind of session. He, he, was, he was wanting to see it for what it really is. He was saying his people were ready to die because they understood that this word set them free, was able to make them wise unto salvation through Jesus, that the message of the gospel was able to uh, uh, set them free from their sin and punishment that was coming. And out of that, out of their joy, they were ready to, to die. And nevertheless, there is this cry. We're not trying to paint it as some kind of walk in the park. We're not just trying to say, here it is and get on with it and none of your griping. That's not it. That these things are painful. Jesus wept. Jesus marveled. Jesus' heart was broken when he saw the fallenness and the evil around him that he grew up with. It touched him deeply, and it touches us. Jesus groaned at the graveside of his friend Lazarus against his hatred for evil and sin and death. He wept at the graveside of his friend Lazarus because of the sorrow that was in the world. And so what we're not saying here is that all we need is a good fresh dose of the truth and we will get on with it. No. These, the prayer of these people who have sacrificed and leave a testimony to us of sacrifice also are crying out as Jesus cried out, as Jesus wept, as Jesus felt the brokenness and the evil and the injustice that he saw in the world. And they cry out. And this is what they say, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Where do they start? In their prayer, it's important to know where they start and it's important to know where we start. They often say, where you end up 
Where you start has a lot to do with where you end up. Canadian Tire commercial from back in the 90s. That's, that's, and it, but there's a lot of truth in that. Where you start has a lot to do with where you end up. And their, their prayers start with the character of God. Some of the greatest prayers in the Gospels go like this. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. What was that blind beggar doing as he was sitting there by the road? He was driving home to Jesus. This is who you are. This is what you are. I appeal to you on that basis. Just as we appeal to people on that basis, don't, don't we? You are a leader, or you are in this capacity as chief of police, or you're the prime minister, or you're the premier, or you have that power, you have that influence. And we appeal. Here, they're doing the same. And that's what we find here in Psalm 74 that we read. Look, he starts off, which we sang, How long, Lord, shall the enemy thus in reproach exclaim? And shall your adversaries blaspheme your name? How long, Lord? It's killing us. It's, it's burdening us to see your name and your truth maligned. They go on. For certainly God is my king, even from times of old. Working in the midst of all the earth, salvation manifold. The sea by thy great power to part asunder did make. And that simply means you split the Red Sea. Didn't you do this, Lord? You broke, verse 15, you broke the fountain and the flood which did with streams abound. In the desert, the rock was struck and the flood of water came out. God, didn't you do those things? Lord, where are you now? This is how to pray. You go to God and you tell God who He is. You tell God what He is and you appeal to Him on that basis. Did you not say, are you not holy and true and sovereign? That's how the saints here are crying out from under the altar. And we cry out in the same way in our personal pain, in our personal affliction, and in international upheaval. We say, God, are you not? Will you not? Did you not? In times past. This is their prayer. You are holy. You, you're of pure eyes than to behold iniquity. Do you know that God judged His people worse than He did the surrounding nations? God was harder on His own people. Sometimes people, oh God was just, the Old Testament, God was just bloodthirsty. He loved just to wipe out all... Look, God judged His own people even more strictly than He did the surrounding nations because he is holy they carried his name his name was upon them and if they weren't living that way that he wanted them his judgment came down and so they are saying here Lord your laws are being flouted there's evil in the world there's injustice in the world oh God will you not arise are you not holy and true And, and, and so, this is how he is appealing to God. This is how we also appear to God. They're not seeking vengeance. They're not seeking vengeance upon themselves. 
They're not simply saying, Lord, get them back for what they did to us. No, they're, they're crying out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? It's a cry for justice. It's a cry for bringing things back to the way they ought to be. If we woke up this morning with all laws of PEI and of Prince Edward Island completely suspended, we would be in complete terror. You wouldn't want to leave your house. You would dig yourself into the hole in your basement and you would stay there until the 24 hours were up. I think there's a, a movie that was made of it that was, wasn't there a couple of years ago. And, uh, but when you see injustice and evil rampant, your cry is for God to move, for God to act. And that is right. What they're doing here, what they're crying out for is right, isn't it? For God's truth to be overridden. For the reality that God lays down in the world to be followed through on. It's not vindictiveness that they are expressing. But it is justice that they desire. It's righteousness. And so we too pray for that God would glorify Himself in exacting justice and judgment upon the earth. Jesus told of a, of a widow in one of His parables when He was talking about prayer. And this widow would come to an unjust judge and says, give me justice against my adversary. She wouldn't leave the judge alone. He says, because I don't care about you or I don't care about God, because this widow keeps coming after me and pestering me, I'll give her justice. And Jesus says, will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? I tell you, He will give justice speedily. And so they are crying out. They're crying out for God's name to be glorified. And that weighs heavily upon each of us, doesn't it? When we live in a world where we see the way things ought to be, but we also see about the way things actually are. And out of that comes this cry. When we live in a world where we see God as He really is, where we see Jesus for who He really is, and out of our hearts comes this desperate cry. Lord, come. Lord, open. Lord, judge. Lord, save. Lord, are You not full of goodness and mercy, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? These are the... the, the spontaneous cries that come out of Christian people because we know God and we know the, the, the brokenness and the sin that is around us. But it also speaks of the fact that we are to do as these themselves are doing and crying out for those who are paying the ultimate price. Those who whose blood is shed for the testimony in the Word. Hebrews tells us, pray for those who are in prison as if in prison with them, for you yourself are also in the body. In other words, these, we are connected in a wonderful way 
with believers all over the world, believers who are suffering, believers who are... And isn't that so much a part of the, the, uh, uh, the Word of God in the New Testament? Paul shared the sufferings that were going on and, and he, he, he commended, say, the Philippian church or the Corinthian church for sharing in my sufferings. He commended Timothy for participating in my sufferings as a good soldier. And we ought to do the same as we see these things unfolding. If, if these, this cry is coming out before the throne, how much more should our voices be heard before the throne of God? For those who around the world suffer on a daily basis for the cause of Christ. Do you go out of your way to inform yourself of what's going on in different parts of the world? Of all the days in which we live, we have really no excuse today for pleading ignorance, do we? With a click of a button, we can have on our computer or on our phone a list from different news agencies all over the world. We can hear the next day what's going on in Nigeria. We can hear uh, sometimes the same day what's going on in China or in Sudan or in Algeria or wherever it is. And immediately we can bring those prayers before God. That's how you use technology to, in a God-glorifying way to say, now I can know what's going on and I can pray effectively and intelligently. I too can bring my cries before the throne and say, Lord, how long? You who are sovereign and true. Hebrews talks about those who suffered mockings and floggings and even chains and imprisonment. Together with those who were stoned or sawn in two, killed with the sword, sword, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. It recounts all of these people for a purpose so that we might be involved in that. That we might be part of that. And that we might say, look, is there a cross in my life? Is there a sacrifice in my life that I make every day for the Word of God? Oftentimes people say, oh, if it were up to me, I'd be ready to die for Jesus. I would die. You know, if some group come in and say, you know, you can't worship there anymore. and You're going to be thrown in prison or if you don't listen, you're going to be put to death. Oh, well, I'd be ready. But sometimes we're not ready to live for Christ in the small things. Telling our children or our grandchildren or our friends the good news that we have about Jesus. Not willing to sacrifice a friendship. Not willing to sacrifice a job. Not willing to... And this is really what's coming. Jobs are being lost because of people's adherence to the Christian Gospel. That's going on today in the Western world. But these are things that, because we know the truth, that's what I said at the outset, because we know these things already, we are ready, we're prepared to say, I'm willing to make the ultimate cost because I'm making those sacrifices now. That's how I'm practicing to get ready for maybe the day when I'll have to make the ultimate how did Shedrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those three young men, stand before Nebuchadnezzar and say, do what you like to us, we will not bow down. Throw us in the furnace if you like. How did they get there? Did they just decide one day, oh, well, we're going to pluck up the strength and this is what we're going to do? No. 
they practiced. They said, let's start with the food that the king gives us. We're not eating that stuff. It's probably been sacrificed to idols. So it's a small thing, but no, we're not doing it. And other things that would come along the way, no. No. When God committed them in a foreign land to keep faithful to Him, to pray to Him, Lord, that's what we'll do. We'll remain faithful no matter if it costs us our jobs, our families, our so that when they got to the fiery furnace, they said, Listen, O King, we believe our God can save us from that furnace, but even if He doesn't know this, we will not bow down to your statue. That's how they got there. But when we compromise, when we maneuver around sacrifices and don't embrace them, we will fall every time. And so God here in His sovereignty tells them, to each were given a white robe, a victory robe, and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Now that, that's, that's a splash of cold water. That's the answer to their prayers. God says, wait, I hear you. I'm listening to you. I'm, I'm going to answer your prayer. But I have a plan and a purpose that will be worked out and fulfilled by not only your death, but by the death of others that will come. And there's a number. And not one drop of blood more will be shed. Not one extra tear will be shed. Not one more heart will be broken that needs to be so that my plan can work itself out. And God says, rest and wait. He's not turning a deaf ear to them. He's opening them up to the reality that yet even more suffering. But He's in control of it. He is limiting it as He does with evil in this world. God limits evil. And so we get a window, this wonderful window into the fact that though there is evil in the world, that there is one who has the keys, one who is in control, and who uh, uh, limits and controls the spread of His kingdom and how that works itself out. And in that, the saints here are to rest. And in that, we are to rest. You see, you can go through whatever. You can, you can suffer. You can, you can go through so many things in life. But if you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Because that shepherd went to the cross in my place. He endured hell on the cross in my place. He was made a curse in my place, I can say. Though I pass through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. You see, friends, that is a theme that spans the entire Word of God. We have nothing to fear. And thank goodness we have our one another. That's what this partly symbolizes. We have one another. We sit down at a table with brothers and sisters with the Spirit of Christ in them with the gospel love in their hearts, with a love for Jesus in their hearts. And we're upheld by one another's prayers and gifts and graces. We encourage one another and support one another through those trials and tribulations, just as we do believers in many other parts of the world. 
as they feel upheld by the prayers of people in the West who are undertaking for them. Well, let's pray. Bless us, O God, as we continue now to worship you through not only the Word, but sacrament, Lord, as we, we uh, take up the bread and the wine, which is gospel in substance form. Father, we pray that just as uh, you minister grace to us through the Word, may you minister your grace through the bread and the wine. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.